Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week on the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is Kevin Young, professor of sociology at the University of Calgary. We are discussing his book, Sport, Violence, and Society, published by Rutledge in 2012. Hardly a week goes by without news of another episode of violence involving sports or athletes. Just this week, a Vancouver youth hockey coach was arrested for deliberately tripping an imposing player during the post-game handshake. Two weeks ago, a fan of the Argentinian club River Plate died after being stabbed at a match, the fifth fan to be killed this year in football-related violence in Argentina. At the Euro Championships, supporters of the Polish and Russian teams fought with each other and with police before a match, and UEFA has fined the Russian Football Federation for its supporters' assaults on stadium guards. Meanwhile, here in the United States, there is no lull in the controversy over the bounty scheme set up by coaches and players for the NFL's New Orleans Saints. And the news last month that the coach of a U-14 rugby team in California set up a similar bounty system shows that the Saints' idea for player motivation is making its way into youth athletics. Fans and commentators deplore such episodes of illegitimate violence. Yet there is no denying the charge that goes through the crowd when a hockey player makes a hard check or a football player delivers a solid tackle. As Kevin Young recognizes, it is difficult to study the attitudes and motivations that fuel sports-related violence. We like the hitting in our games, but we don't like the ugly violence by fans and coaches and players and parents. Kevin's book is based on more than two decades of studying sports-related violence. In our interview, we discuss English hooliganism of the 70s and 80s, debates over fighting in ice hockey, the Vancouver riots of 2011, and the current scandals in the sports press. As is clear from our conversation, episodes of sports-related violence are varied and frequent, and the sources of such behavior are complicated. But this makes it all the more important that we think carefully and critically about the violence in our games. My guest this week on the podcast is Kevin Young. Kevin, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you, Bruce. So I'll say as uh, something of an introduction that uh, Kevin is a professor of sociology at the University of Calgary. He has won several awards for teaching. He has a long list of publications in the sociology of sports going back over the last 25 years. 
Uh, but Kevin, you grew up a fan of Liverpool and a rugby player, and and not to say <laughs> that fans of Liverpool and rugby players cannot grow up to be successful academics. But can you tell us how you did become a successful academic? Actually, there are lots of successful academics that uh, started their lives in uh, Northern England, but that's a different matter. Um, it's first of all, it's it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, very fun to think about talking about the book. Um, yeah, I got my start as an undergraduate uh, student in the uh, uh, in the UK at the University of Leicester, which is in many ways uh, to be given some credit for the uh, the genesis of of this book and my interest in this topic because. I happened to be at the University of Leicester during a really interesting time in the late 1970s and early 1980s when the first thoroughgoing, systematic, sociological work on uh, sports violence in the form of football hooliganism in the UK was being undertaken by a group of um, sociologists fronted by uh, two men that all listeners in sociology will know, Norbert Elias and Eric Dunning. Uh, and these folks with a, a team of junior colleagues at the time were doing some of the first thorough empirical work into football hooliganism in the UK. There had been other social scientific work, notably psychological work, but this was the first thorough sociological work that, that had been done. And I happened to be brought in on the very sidelines of this work as an undergraduate student. Uh, at that time, I did an undergraduate honours thesis on the... Uh, the media coverage of uh, very early forms of uh, disorder with football matches in Northern England, uh, and then went on subsequently to do graduate school in Southern Ontario in sociology at McMaster University. So sports-related violence is something you've been studying, as you said, from, from the time you were a student. And, uh, but you write in the book that, that violence in sports is difficult to study. Why is that? It's difficult to study on a number of different levels. It's difficult to study because the uh, the subject matter is very disparate and diverse. The, there's no there's no uh, legitimate core of sports violence, so to speak. It's difficult to study because it's often uh, a secret world, a deviant world that remains hidden and disguised. In fact, I would say increasingly so. It's difficult to study because some people are loath to speak about it and loathe to speak about it candidly. And it's also difficult to study because it's so deeply politicized and people have very strong opinions about it, which makes it both fascinating and interesting to research, but also difficult sometimes to disassociate the ideology from what's actually taking place. So you mentioned that one of the things that makes it difficult to study is that it's it's deviant, it's underground. Yet at the same time, this is something you talk about in the book, that in sports you have accepted violence. I forget which rugby player you, you quote saying, you know, whenever I'm on the rugby field, I'm committing assault. Yeah, that's actually a couple of things. That's, that's a very unusual view from a particularly informed uh, player who said that uh, notoriously in the last decade or so. It's not uh, unusual in the sense that participants and players are aware of what they're doing in the sense that uh, their behavior might impose injury or harm onto opponents. They're aware of this. But the sort of the legal language that's associated with that particular quote, I think, is, is unusual. Um, I think that what's taking place in, in the area of violence in sport is normalized within the cultures of 
of sport and several sports in particular. But it still remains difficult to study because while um, normalized and uh, sanctioned within certain sports fields, people are increasingly aware of public disrepute and stigma and reputation and increasingly either individually loathe to speak about it or outright banned by their superiors and organizers from saying provocative things that might, to be candid, get them in trouble. So I'll ask as well as we're getting started, uh, looking back over your career of writing about violence in sports, uh, what what changes do you see uh, in terms of violence, whether by players or fans or how violence is viewed in sports? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a question that comes up all the time in sociology classes, too. I think that there are indications that things haven't changed very much in some respects, and there are indications at the same time that things are changing quite quickly. As a general rule, I would say that the institution of sport is very slow to change. And while it's dynamic, it hardly changes and modifies itself overnight. So there are, on the one hand, indications that things haven't changed uh, very much at all. In the chapter, for instance, uh, on the media, I go to great lengths to indicate that while there is tremendous moral outrage about media coverage these days of certain events that might appear um, stigmatizable or morally outrageous in one way, shape or form, It is most certainly the case that if we go back 20, 30 or even more years, certainly to the 1970s, that things haven't changed very much in the way in which the media cover cover, uh, aspects of violence in sports. And the classic case in point in Canada and the United States is ice hockey and ice hockey coverage and the way in which in the tabloids in particular, but also in the more respectable broadsheets, there is a particular style of coverage which rather than the episodes that take place actually seem to derive currency from the events and maybe even uh, use it as a strategy to sell copy. So there are episodes of unchangeability and very slow to change characters in the world of sport. On the other hand, I think there are certain aspects of uh, change which can't be denied. Uh, Sport is increasingly couched and taking place in a more politically sensitive world where aspects of violence require more justification and rationalization than ever before. Uh, I don't want to claim that athletes are more informed than they've ever been, but they have the opportunity to be more informed than they've ever been before. And certainly one obvious aspect of the sports violence spectrum is that unlike the 1950s, 60s or before, for instance, even the 1970s, when an aspect of injury, risk or something excessive, including a catastrophe takes place, these things likely reach the media uh, Mm -hmm. in all of its various forms in an instantaneous way which was never previously the case. And I think the participants are increasingly careful about what they're doing um, in certain respects for fear of some sort of response that might might make them lose a job or have them sanctioned or punished in some way. So picking up on this instantaneous coverage or appearance of episodes of violence in, in the media... Um, something throughout the book, you identify various 
well, first, you identify various types of violence connected with sports. So violence among players, crowd violence, uh, abuse by coaches and parents, uh, sexual assault, instances of hazing. And in most of the chapters, you include tables that list, uh, with media references, specific instances of these various kinds of sports-related violence. And I want to ask first, how large is your database Looking at these <laughs> these episodes you've compiled news reports on. Okay, well, having done this for the last uh, quarter of a century, let's say, or more, going back to undergraduate school, the um, the answer is large. The answer is significant. For instance, uh, at one point with Rutledge, the publisher of the book, we discussed the possibility of containing of of having an appendices. Uh, whose contents would be classified by incidents on the field, incidents off the field. And even if you just think about football hooligan-related incidents, classified by region or nation or level of play, this would be not just a book in itself, but probably several annals in themselves. So the answer is significant. And one of the difficulties in writing a book of this kind is that you're never going to please everybody all of the time. And in some respects, any of the, each of the individual chapters probably looks like a fairly superficial overview of an area, which in itself is massive. And certainly the incidents which could have been referenced are far more unwieldy than the already 50 pages of references in the book. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was kind of gathering. So what I was wondering as I was looking at these examples you cite, uh, with your database, when you, when you sort by date... What is, what is the frequency of uh, episodes of sports-related violence that you'd see? That's a really good question. And I think, to be fair, there are tables, for instance, the football hooligan tables, the soccer hooliganism tables, where there could have been literally dozens mm -hmm. of episodes listed in a given year, and in some cases, months. On the other hand, there are categories of sports-related violence, as I've termed them, let's, let's say in the SRV wheel in the form of uh, individualized uh, fan-to-player violence, which, to be fair, are fairly isolated snapshots of a phenomenon which is simply much less common than some other aspects of the phenomenon, too. So... I was trying to be careful in the book not to create the impression of complete symmetry between each of these, I think there are 16 or 18 different articulations or manifestations of SRV, because they're not symmetrical in every way, shape or form at all. But certainly it's the case that some of them are very prolific and very common, if not daily, very common while others are actually quite unusual, although they may be growing in uh, their expression. Okay. So following along with that, when you look at, at these various kinds that uh, you've identified, or there's various types, do you see uh, common characteristics or perhaps common characteristics of, of player-related violence and fan-related violence, other than the fact that they're some way, in some way connected to athletics? Yeah, I think that that's the actual, um, the belly and the purpose of the book. The essential premise of the book is that if not all, most aspects of SRV, or what I call sports-related violence, uh, share overlaps and associations and links. Not always the same overlaps, associations, and links, but they share things in common that have to do with the very core of 
sociology, uh, which might have to do with certainly age and gender, but other phenomena like ethnicity, for instance, religiosity, uh, uh, and other social stratifiers, which I talk about in the book. For instance, almost every expression of sport-related violence in the SRV wheel, the matrix of cells, uh, contains a preponderance of male-related behavior and typically male-related behavior in positions of power. And in this respect, I think that the broader sociological point that grows out of the book, which is on violence related to sport, could probably spin across to a similar study of violence in the military or violence during war or violence in male-related workplaces. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably some interesting sociological parallels could be found there. Yeah, yeah. You know, something, uh, picking up on that, something that I've done research on is, is nationalism. And I've always thought an interesting comparative study will be to, would be to look at hooliganism or fan violence and nationalist violence, where in, in both instances it, it looks like young men uh, just, just out breaking stuff. And yeah, I think that that's, that's an element of um, crowd behavior um, and spectatorial action that has been identified in the book. But I think we need to exercise some caution in uh, separating between episodic, occasional, casual, spontaneous behaviors and behaviors such as football hooliganism, which concerns and bothers the authorities, which is more patterned and predictable. Mm-hmm. The two might overlap, but they can also come as very different things. And uh, specifically, if I can use an example, during the most recent, the second um, large-scale riot that took place in the city of Vancouver, the NHL riot that took place last year, one of the allegations and claims that was made by municipal spokespersons, including the mayor of Vancouver at the time, is that the activities involved, I think the term was anarchists and criminals from out of town. And it seemed incredulous to me. I was incredulous to hear this because I thought, well, most of the people that I was seeing on, albeit television, images of the riot wore Vancouver Canucks shirts. After I read about them being interviewed by the police, they lived in Vancouver. They mostly had respectable jobs. They had been fans of the team for a long period of time. Yes, they were attempting to set fire to police cruisers, but there were other things that brought them together other than spontaneous rowdyism that was alcohol-fueled. Mm-hmm. Let me pick up on that because uh, uh, you mentioned in the book and you mentioned in your introduction that there's been a lot of research on soccer hooliganism in, in Britain and in Europe. Uh, but as you say in the book, there's been very little done on episodes of fan violence in the United States and, and Canada. So uh, looking at, at looking comparatively at, at episodes of fan violence in Europe and in North America, what, what distinctions and what similarities do you recognize? I think that, there again, there are overlaps and, uh, and differences. If I can begin by talking about the image of the issue, which is probably one of the things that we need to consider first, and that's that North American sport continues to have, uh, this is faltering a little bit, it continues to have a pretty much squeaky clean image in terms of the behavior of its fans. If fan violence does take place, even critics tend to 
characterize the violence that takes place as episodic, individual, and unlikely to re-express itself down the line. And I have a problem with this because I think now uh, in 2012, we have decades of evidence to suggest that there is more taking place than simply spontaneous episodic violence. Um, So I think the first point that needs to be made in any comparison of this kind is to, well, let's look at what the public thinks about this. That, in turn, I think, is used as an excuse by the authorities, by the sports uh, authorities, and by the ordinary fans, who in North America would prefer to deflect attention from the problems that we have, whether it's in Dallas, Houston, New York, Montreal, uh, or Vancouver, by looking at what appear to be worse and bigger problems elsewhere. And that sort of theory of law is not used in most countries. That, that sort of principle is not used in most countries where people want to take seriously episodes of social injustice which are taking place. Specifically, what needs to take place is some serious and thoroughgoing examination of problems that take place under your own nose in a way that excludes an assessment of other places until such time as a comparison or a parallel makes sense. But if we are considering a parallel or a comparison, there are overlaps in the way in which the phenomena tend to be uh, expressed normally by men not exclusively, but first and foremost, sports, sports crowd behavior tends to be, in its violent characteristics, tends to be an expression of male behavior. It tends to be an expression of relatively youthful behavior. It's very unusual, unusual to have grandfathers jailed uh, or sanctioned by the police for throwing buckles, although these episodes have taken place. And there tend to be overlaps in terms, of course, of territoriality or excessive and zealous interest and support for the club in question. The club might be a municipal club, it might be a regional level of sport, or it might be a national level of sport. That said, there are real differences in the articulations and the manifestations. I think the most obvious uh, difference between the North American and the, uh, the British or the Northern European scenario is that, to my knowledge, we have no developed, patterned, systematic, what the Brits would call super crews or firms of hooligan fans, which travel around the country and indeed the continent or the world supporting a particular team. We come close in some respects Uh, For instance, in the case of several NFL teams, one might think about the Cleveland Browns, the former L.A. and the Oakland Raiders and other NFL teams. They have extremely raucous fans who have um, dark reputations, among others, within the league. And certain NHL teams, uh, you can say the same of, such as the two New York sets of fans, for instance. But none of these scenarios contain super crews or firms of fans that on a regular basis send hundreds of potentially fighting fans to events. That seems to be limited to the cultures of sport where soccer have developed over decades, if not centuries at this point. And while it might develop down the line in North America so far, it hasn't expressed itself in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you about the work that uh, you cut your teeth as a sociologist on looking at at hooliganism in English soccer. 
Uh, now looking back at that body of research after after 25 years, what do you think holds up well in terms of the insights into hooliganism from, from that work of the 80s? And uh, where are areas that um, you think ne- more work needs to be done or different questions need to be asked? It's a great question. Um, gosh, I think this is a really simple one uh, in terms of the legitimacy and the status of work that's been done on football hooliganism is so developed and so sophisticated and so thoroughgoing uh, in its depth and its level of detail that I think that some people have almost given up the possibility of continuing to do this research because they think either it's been studied to death or the problem has gone away. The problem has, has not gone away, uh, but the problem has certainly been more systematically studied than probably any other aspect of sports-related violence. I think that I would be uh, safe to say that football hooliganism in Northern Europe has been as studied an aspect of this general uh, spectrum of human behavior as any other aspect of SRV. Suffice it to say that this work has been both sponsored by governments and sports-related bodies, in this particular case, football-related bodies. And I think every listener will know that football-related bodies would never sponsor work unless it thought that it would get something that would satisfy its own needs out of it. Uh, Governments such as the English and the British governments have used the work of the Leicester School and other excellent work that's been done from different theoretical points of view uh, in a practical and a praxis uh, way in order to alleviate control or attend to the problem. And I think that it's safe to say that football hooligan research has probably been as implemented in social policy as any other component of SRV research. But I think the more humble and the more modest sociologists of sports violence, in, even in Europe, would say, this is not to say that there's no more work to be done. In a changing social climate, in a world in Northern Europe, and let's say in the United Kingdom, where the, the problem seemed to reach a peak in the dark days of Heysel and Hillsborough in the 1980s, It's a very dangerous conclusion to reach that the problem has gone away. And I think currently, as we speak, during Euro 2012, we've seen evidence of this with the re-bubbling up of the problem, not just in Poland between Poles and Russians and Ukrainians and Russians and others, but also with the re-expression of the problem problem related to fan dissatisfaction with the the performance of the English national team and uh, them leaving the tournament at the hands of Italy on penalties, as you know, uh, three or four days ago. So there's still more work to be done. In terms of the particular questions that need to be asked, that's a really great question because I'm not sure that we're at a point with football hooliganism where really creative and innovative new questions can be asked because so many questions have been done. But I think the way that I would conceive of that on my toes, so to speak, would be the asking of old questions in new social climates. So the social climate might have changed, uh, which might beg new questions. 
But at the very least, we need to ask familiar questions about whether or not things are changing with the lads that do the violence, what communities they're going back to, whether or not their communities are changing, whether questions of masculinity have been revised and modified, and whether questions of accountability and rationalization have changed over time too. So you said that the problem has not gone away in terms of um, instances of fan violence in, in European soccer, but, but there has been a clear decline. Uh, in terms of acts of hooliganism. So in, in looking at that decline, do you see uh, um, how would we understand ways in which authorities can limit uh, sports-related violence from, from what we've seen in Europe in the last two decades? Again, I think we have to be careful in uh, not assuming, Bruce, that the reason for the apparent decline, actually it's a real decline in football hooligan behaviors in the United Kingdom uh, over the, uh, the last uh, decade, decade and a half or so, is, it, is attributable only to control. Mm-hmm. I think that there are other levels of behavior and uh, sensitivity which are taking place, which includes some level of reflexivity on the part of fans about what sort of uh, groups uh, of fans they want to represent themselves. And to pick up on a point that you mentioned, uh, albeit uh, sarcastically at the outset, (laughs) with with Liverpool Football Club, Liverpool uh, uh, underwent significant Uh, reasons for reflexivity and change in the 1980s, especially with its slash their involvement in the Heysel episode and the Hillsborough episode, which, as you know, led to the catastrophic injuring of and deaths of dozens and dozens of fans. Since that time, problems at Liverpool Football Club have not gone away, but they have certainly dissipated and gone down. And I think that is an outgrowth both of social control, of social control which is more more thoughtful and circumspect, as opposed to belligerent and aggressive and adversarial, some more thoughtful policing, as well as, on the other side of things, some level of reflexivity, with respect to groups of fans who would like to express their territoriality or their zeal and support for their club in a way in which is clearly less appropriate in 2012 than it might have been in 1978 or 1985. At the very least, once again, these fans are aware of sanctions and controls which might take place in a media world which is more panopticonic, Big Brother is watching in a way in which it hasn't done in the past. Um, And I think that this has had an impact as well. But finally, I think what's taking place, and this is the main sociological question is, why would we ever assume that hooliganism could ever go away simply by policing it? Until such time as the communities, the thought processes, the gender rituals and practices and systems which inform working class communities in particular, but also middle class communities, about what it takes to be a man, what it takes to be a woman, and how one can responsibly express fan support of a club. Until those things are changed, there's absolutely no reason to believe that hooliganism would ever go away. And in fact, it hasn't gone away. It bubbles up at what it sees as appropriate moments, which might be moments of frustration or moments of excess or moments of opportunism. Kevin, let's turn from violence among fans to uh, violence among players. Uh, 
And uh, I want to talk about uh, hockey in, in Canada and the United States. And uh, there's been a lot of debate in the media, a lot of discussion about violence in hockey in the last year or so. And, and just this spring in the early rounds of the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, there were much publicized instances of some vicious, vicious on-ice hits in games, one of which sent a player to the hospital. But at the same time, TV ratings, at least in the United States, uh, for the Stanley Cup playoffs went up. So is, is violence in hockey and perhaps um, in, in other sports, is this something that fans want to see? Well, first of all, there's no real way of knowing whether or not the, um, uh, the fan base and the, uh, uh, the audiences went up and increased in volume because of the violence on the field of play. There's no way of actually knowing that, uh, to my knowledge so far, um, but it looks that way. It looks on the surface of things, uh, as you can see during any routine common garden variety NHL game, that there is just as much support for player violence as there is for player skill. And the really easy way to tease that out and to test that is simply to go to a game and not watch the action on the field of play, but to watch the fans, to watch the audience. And in any single NHL uh, uh, stadium on this continent, you will see just as much joy, pleasure, and fan reaction uh, in the bleachers when there is a fight, as you will, when there is a goal, which is disturbing on all sorts of different levels. That's not to say that there is widespread fan support for violence in the sport of ice hockey because the surveys which have been done by sports organizations, by television networks, by social researchers, to my knowledge, have not really shown that uh, fans increasingly, increasingly want to see, let's say in this case, fist fighting. They have shown the opposite, that fans are anything but stupid, they're informed, they know their game, and they want to see a decreasing uh, element of fisticuffs on the field of play. Not to the point where the sorts of figures that we're talking about are 2% or even 22%, but it's certainly a divided reaction uh, in most of the surveys that I'm aware of. That seems to be at odds with the experience in the stadiums themselves when uh, violence takes place, where there is some sort of dissonance between what the fans are saying on surveys and the crazy way and the crazed way they seem to support the violence on the field of play. Um, there are so many different levels that we can talk about with respect to player violence in ice hockey, and I think we have to be careful to point out that this is ice hockey, not field hockey, because other cultures see field hockey as a tough and tumble sport in the way in which, as North Americans, we see ice hockey. Uh, um, but you need to ask me more specific questions about this. Well, let me ask you about, you had talked about the research you've done with, with the media. And uh, I know in the past you had an article uh, about Don Cherry and, uh, and his place in, in Canadian culture. So uh, picking up on what you said that when you survey fans or when surveys have been done of fans, that, that fans do want to see fighting decrease, what role does the media play in creating this culture that maintains maintains violence in hockey where you have where you have fans standing up and cheering when there's a fight on the rink yeah i think that the media plays a participatory rather than a passive role 
and that's really important to note. Uh, the media don't just happen. They're socially constructed, they're there for a reason, and they are patterned over, at this point, decades and decades of, uh, uh, of participation. And in the, uh, the respective chapters of the book, and in the particular chapter on media coverage, I, grow to, uh, I go to some detail, some lengths, to demonstrate the specific ways in which not only one can clearly see that media coverage is violence-approving and violence-condoning, but when you actually sit down with uh, journalists themselves, their own thought processes and their own occupational cultures tend to be such that they reproduce the problems too. However, as with every element that we've discussed so far, I think we have to take this on a case-by-case basis. We have to be careful not to generalize to the entire media because in 2012, as you know better than I, media means different things to different people. So if we take newspapers, for instance, there's clearly a very qualitative and quantitative difference between the way in which the tabloids, the daily uh, broadsheets, and the, uh, the national broadsheets cover and respond to fist-fighting events or violence or injury events in the NHL. Specifically, while you would be um, uh, likely to find in the tabloids broad and black typefaces, uh, more photographic and graphic images, um, more punny and comedic cut lines and punch lines that tend to make light of and poke fun at the events on the ice. In the more quality papers, you would tend to find a more circumspect, less photograph-based, and more sort of intellectual and educated reaction. That's not to say that hidden within the words of the broadsheets, you can't find the same violent, condoning spirit. But typically, that tends to be the way that you find these things. But the media is changing. And as you know, Bruce, we're talking right now in what is essentially a, a podcast, a digital delivery of ideas and dialogue around the sports violence issue. What's changed, if anything, in the world of uh, sports violence and sports in general is the way in which fans and members of the public can resist and oppose maybe the the light-hearted and the less serious depictions of violence in sport by saying uh, this is not the way in which a Todd Batuzzi or a uh, Marty McSorley episode should be covered. You should be more responsible, and this is the problem I have with your coverage. Or, and this takes place every day in Canada, I have a problem with the CBC, the nationally funded, funded and publicly funded television network, allowing Don Cherry to sell what are at the end of the day, often not always, but often rather limited views and xenophobic views about Russians and Finns and Scandinavians uh, on Canada's publicly funded television network. In other words, if anything has changed, it's the ability of the public to fight back and to oppose and to resist. So it's no longer the linear, the one-directional entity it was at one point. And I think the media is, if anything, in the world of sports violence, it's changing quicker than anything else. Something, Kevin, that you've done a lot of work on is uh, injury and risk to athletes. And uh, I'll ask you, why is it that a young Canadian hockey player will decide to become the team's enforcer, or a young American football player will appeal to his coach to get back on the field after an injury? 
Well, I can answer that question from a sociological point of view. I cannot answer it from a psychological point of view. I'm not trained or qualified in that. Sociologically, I think the, uh, the first point that needs to be made is the cultural appeal and the cultural credit that's associated with certain figures on the ice or on the field of play. I'm not sure that most Canadian kids would rather be a Todd Batuzzi or a Ty Domi or a Marty McSorley than a Sidney Crosby or an Alexander Ovechkin. I don't think that that's the case. But certainly there remains, as there does for every position in the game, an interest in a particular kind of character in the world of sport. But I don't necessarily think that it always starts out with young kids thinking, uh, using the theory of role modeling, oh, I would like to be the new Marty McSorley or the, the new goon, the new cop, the new policeman on the ice. This is where I think the organizational culture and subculture of hockey becomes a problem. Because even if you're deeply skilled at a junior and a very youthful level, the higher up the ranks you get, the more it becomes the case that not only do you have to prove that you have excessive skill, you additionally have to prove that you've got excessive toughness. And in the process of the exercise of demonstrating this particular brand of commitment and solidarity with and to the team, I think fighters come out of this culture. It's certainly the case that on the basis of physical qualifications, let's say, that young kids, big young kids, are groomed to play particular roles and scouted to play particular roles right from the start. But I also think that goons and policemen and enforcers come out of the culture of the sport where over time, in the process of demonstrating toughness, a new role becomes viable uh, for them in the eyes of lurid coaches and sponsors and organizers that see a particular player not only being skillful, but also perhaps able to play a more enforcing role on the ice. I think the answer to the question, Bruce, is it's still rewarded. Being an enforcer on the ice might not be the most um, uh, lauded and it might not be the most honored role in the sport. It's still rewarded subculturally, culturally, occupationally. There's a career in it. And from a gendered point of view, both for men and some women, there is a particular brand of appeal in expressing one's masculinity in these ways. So, Kevin, your book came out in the early part of uh, 2012, and you do include some mention of events from early 2011, for instance, the, the Vancouver riots of, of last spring. But uh, I want to ask about your interpretation of events that have happened in the sports news in, in recent months, so a after you would have sent the book off to the publisher. And uh, first I want to ask about your reading of the bounty controversy in the NFL. So this is the, the ongoing scandal surrounding uh, defensive players for the New Orleans Saints who set up a system that would uh, reward, with cash, reward hits that took a player on the opposing team out of the game. So how would you have brought that into, into your book? Or say for the second edition, how would you bring it into the book? Um, I think what's interesting about the bounty payments issue is the level of public and moral outrage, which in itself I find quite shocking. I think a more informed position on the bounty payments issue is first of all to recognize that, as with the point that I've just made, 
bounty payments are just one logical extension away from what we already have on a regular basis in the world of most of our contact sports. It's not that different than what we already have. The difference itself is severe and austere and I think noteworthy, but the level of public outrage seemed to be dissonant to me with what actually takes place in the world of sport. I think what was really different uh, and notable about the bounty payment issue is the level of excessive hubris, that an unreflexive hubris, that quite shocking hubris, that defensive and offensive coaches used in a recorded setting that seemed to allow them to think that they could do this in 2011 and 2012 with relative absolute immunity from from sanction. I do understand why people are both appalled and shocked by that. In a way, the only difference between that and what we already have in the shape of a sport where the intent of the sport is not just to take the ball away from your opponent, but let's be honest about this to take your opponent off the field of play and remove him from the possibility of beating you. It's simply a matter of degree. So for me, with the bounty payment issue, the level of moral uh, reaction and moral outrage, uh, public debate, if you will, was sort of surprising because it's just a little bit further than what we've already got. Um, That said, the level of hubris, arrogance, and cheek that's involved in the acknowledged taping of these sorts of instructions and guidance to professionals that allow the insiders to think that they could ever do this in a world that's increasingly sensitive to questions of violence is really in itself quite shocking too. Well, let me ask about another uh, recent event in in the sports news, and this is an even more shocking event. So it was just a few days ago that uh, the former Penn State football coach, Jerry Sandusky, was convicted of child sexual assault. And uh, since news of of Sandusky's crimes broke last fall, this has been a huge, huge scandal here in the United States. So in, in your view, can this episode of a man who was a serial sexual offender who also happened to be a football coach, can this episode be understood within the larger framework of violence in sports? I think so. I think so. One of the um, the threads throughout the book is the way in which gender and power can, not does, but gender and power may and can come together in a debilitating and abusive way in sports environments. And I think that that's what's taking place in the um, the Sandusky case, the equivalent or the approximate equivalent of which we have had over the last decade and a half, by the way, in Canada, up here in the Graham James, Theron Flurry and Sheldon Kennedy ice hockey case and other cases, quite frankly, which are clear cases of abusive coaches grooming over years and years, which has left a graveyard of now grown-up but battered and psychologically damaged men. In the Sandusky case, what's interesting is the way in which, um, and also I think we have to add in the Joe Paterno name uh, at this case too, uh, at this point as well, we have to acknowledge the way in which, first of all, in the world of sport, there tends initially to be a general reluctance to accept that this lauded figure in the world of sport could ever be guilty 
of the sorts of offenses which uh, he has been accused of. Not in every case, but in many cases, we tend to find that, in fact, there's a good deal of evidence to suggest that the accusations are legitimate and should have been made in the first place. I personally, and I'm sure that you and lots of the listeners, are surrounded by football cultures that excused and rationalized not Sandusky's direct behavior away, but seemed to make excuses for the uh, surrounding personalities in the case, for not coming forward earlier to the authorities, for excusing the behavior, or for legitimizing it in some sort of way, shape, and form. And that's typically what we find in the world of sport, that there is an excuse uh, rationalizing uh, sort of process that takes place that uh, attempts to leave the sport with its squeaky clean image. It's going to be really difficult for college football, certainly at Penn State, or in the case of, I think it was basketball at Syracuse, in the immediate future, to come away with that squeaky clean image. So, Kevin, we're almost out of time, and and this would probably be a good place to confess after reading your book. When I played football, American football, I loved to make a, a good, hard tackle in the open field. When I played ice hockey, I took great pride in a well-executed hip check. And, and so I'll ask you about uh, thinking back on your rug, rugby career. Did you, did you enjoy hitting? What you have just said, I would say in almost exactly the same words, but with different sports replacing the sports that you played. In my case, uh, and I'm sitting right now in my home office, which contains a photograph of me at university and varsity level being propped up by two far larger players for being one of the only players on the team who had some sort of crazy willingness to tackle larger players on the field of play. Uh, yes, I did enjoy the hitting. Yes, and I do enjoy the, the physical and the aggressive aspects of many sports. And I think that this, again, brings us full circle to the, the question of what is it that we're studying? If um, the way in which we define sport is based on questions like, do in any way, shape, or form we accept a sport like football, ice hockey, or boxing, or do we want it banned because it's morally or civilly outrageous in modern society? That's a very difficult equation for me to be a part of because uh, I like the sport, I like the physicality of the sport, I liked it as a player, and I continue to like it as a fan. I think the line that's increasingly drawn in the sand about these things, Bruce, is the question of reasonable and responsible risk in a general setting of open, acknowledged, and honest consent on behalf of the players and the participants involved. So using some of the examples so far that uh, characterize the, the last 50 minutes of dialogue, in the case of an NHL player, an NHL player consents to be hit or to hit, but he or she does not consent to be paralyzed or die. In the consent of an NFL or CFL football player, he consents to perform the duties that his supervisors, his owners, his coaching staff ask him to do as long as all of the conditions are made transparent to him, which might include medical information or the, the ramifications of the behaviors involved. And so the story goes in each of the cases that we've mentioned so far. 
to summarize, I think the line that's increasingly being drawn in the sand is the question of reasonable behaviors in a setting which clearly condones physicality and aggressivity. Let me follow up on that. Um, how do you think the research on brain injuries uh, is is going to affect this? And, and in my own case, so as I said, I played American football. And I was quite happy when my my 12-year-old son decided to give up American football. Uh, How do you think this this new research is going to change the way we view the reasonableness uh, of of violence within sports? Well, I think that... um Again, we have to be careful about the way that we're using the word violence because violence doesn't always mean aggressivity and vice versa. But I think it is affecting it, it should affect it, and it's going to affect it down the line. But again, we have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. Where concussions and concussion research is concerned, there are two ways that we can deal with the concussion research. Either we can deal with the evidence, the data, so to speak, about concussions, which is pretty conclusive, as I understand it, in terms of (laughs) shock horror, the risk and the danger that players undergo in heavy contact sports like hockey and football. Either we can change the equipment of the the game, uh, we can change the way in which the game is played, or we can change the way in which young people come to these sports in the first place. So once again, I think the dividing line between what we do with the data is, do we use the data to change uh, the way in which the sport is played, or do we use the data to change the way that we think about the sport? In terms of the way that the game is played, you can change the equipment, which might make it safer, but that's a different thing than saying that you can better inform the players about the sorts of risks that they're assuming when they put on a helmet or uh, um, skate onto the ice with a stick. I think it's going to affect uh, the world of sport. The dialogue should not stop. But let's be honest about concussions. It's like other forms of medical uh, categories that uh, sociologists of medicine and health have been telling us about for a very long time. What's new in this is the medical attention to concussions. Concussions are not, not new. They go back since the beginning of, of play, so to speak. Uh, so it's not that the world of sport is, is uh, uh, what's the right word, is unwilling to accept concussions. It's whether it's, it's willing to accept concussions in its current guise or whether or not it will adjust itself in order to accommodate a different shape and style of play. So I'll ask Kevin, what are you working on now? Um, I have several projects on the go. I'm interested in looking at uh, the role of women in aggression and violence in sports, and I'm interested in uh, animal sports, and in particular animal cruelty and questions of justice and uh, protection of animals in some of our most prized institutions, which include sport. All right. Well, thank you for coming on New Books in Sports. This was a a fascinating book, and, and I appreciate talking with you about it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to an interview with Kevin Young about his book, Sport, Violence, and Society, published by Rutledge in 2012. New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from architecture to biography. 
If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week. <laughs>